Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Jenna, first, good morning. Great to be with you, the queen of talk radio in America. The left does not want to honor our freedoms, and we have a responsibility to fight back. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. Fill that void with a vision that runs so deep that it dilutes the woke agenda. Well, thank you, Jenna. Right from the beginning, I knew you, so it's an honor to be with you. You're doing really well. Proud of you. Former legal counsel to President Trump. Ellis. Well, good morning. And as we continue to talk about truth in society and the Christian perspective of everything around us from law and policy to church and the family, uh, there are some topics that are so important that we dedicate a full show to focusing on that topic. And this is the thing I love about radio. It is my favorite medium because we can have these longer form conversations. Uh, When I was uh, still doing, you know, Fox News and, um, you know, some of these other uh, shows during the course of my representation for President Trump and and well prior to that, um, it would always be kind of laughable to me that, uh, that often the host would say, all right, so you have this really complicated legal question and you know, describe the Constitution, you have 30 seconds, go. And it's like, you can say maybe one or two talking points and, and that's about it. And I, I'm grateful that radio is a very different format than that. And we can have uh, more in-depth conversations about things like the Constitution, like law and policy and of course, the Judeo-Christian founding of our nation that is rooted in the truth of God. And so today we are going to be talking about Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution and the Convention of States movement and this whole project. So uh, my good friend, and I know all of you uh, know him uh, well and respect him, Mark Levin, uh, who is an amazing attorney, um, an excellent radio host uh, in his own merit. I learn a lot from him. He's going to be joining me in the next segment to talk about this more. But I want to set this up because the moment that we talk about Convention of States, There is either an excitement from people who love this project, or there's this hesitance and immediate objection that, oh no, this is something that is, is going to be wildly dangerous for our nation. And we can't possibly do this. And then there are some people, um, and I've gotten a lot of emails actually, and uh, people who contact me via social media um, and others, uh, other ways that want to know more about this and want to have a comprehensive understanding of what exactly we're talking about with the Convention of States. So um, I hope that you will stay with us through this whole program and even provide the podcast version after the show to your friends who either want to know more about Convention of States in Article 5 or who maybe have some objections because um, we want to be able to answer those objections uh, with not only the truth but also a persuasion for those of us who are advocates of the Convention of States project. And so, so what do we mean by the Convention of States? Well, this is actually rooted in the text of the U.S. Constitution. Uh, Article 5, if you go to the U.S. Constitution, says the Congress, whenever two-thirds of both houses shall deem it necessary, shall propose amendments to this Constitution. Or, and that or is a, is a very key term, or on the application of the legislatures of two-thirds of the several states shall call a convention for proposing amendments, which in either case, whether it comes through Congress or the legislature, 
shall be valid to all intents and purposes as part of this Constitution when ratified by the legislatures of three-fourths of the several states or by conventions in three-fourths thereof. So this is the text of the Constitution. We have two different ways to amend our U.S. Constitution. And in the history of our nation, we have only amended our Constitution 27 times in our nation's history through the first method, which is that Congress proposed amendments and then those amendments were ratified by the uh, requisite number of the states. And that included our first 10 amendments, which are known as the Bill of Rights. So we've done this often in our country and uh, some amendments in in my perspective um, and from my view as not only an American citizen, but also an attorney have been good for our country, uh, like the Bill of Rights. And then others, like, for example, the 16th and 17th Amendments, um, the right for the federal government or the power, rather, to uh, collect income taxes, um, that that should not have ever gone through. I think that's been a detriment to our nation. And the 17th Amendment, which uh, says that and provides a different way that we elect our U.S. senators um, instead of having that done by state legislatures so that the Senate actually represented the states, we now do that by popular election. I think that's been a detriment and it's made kind of both houses look very similar, right? So, um, but we've done that through Congress, yet we've never done it through a convention of the states. Well, why is that? And why do we use this term convention? Is it a constitutional convention or what exactly are the parameters? Well, we will be right back with more with my good friend Mark Levin and um, and a great argument uh, to actually utilize Article 5. So I want to talk with him and then we'll be back with more after that um, from some kind of breakdown and analysis. But um, I'm very excited to finally have Mark Levin on the show and talk about this very, very important mechanism that our founders gave us for such a time as this. So we'll be right back with more on Jenna Ellis in the morning. truth with love. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Well, welcome friends. And I am so excited to finally have on the program, uh, my dear friend who is, you all know as the great one, uh, Mark Levin himself. He's the host of Life, Liberty and Levin on Fox News and also uh, the host of the great radio program. And uh, Mark, I, I really appreciate you joining because a lot of my listeners have um, asked questions and want to talk more of the conversation of the Convention of States project. Of course, uh, the Article 5 in the U.S. Constitution that shows two alternative methods that are prescribed in the Constitution for amending the Constitution. And you have long been a champion of this. So um, describe for me why you think that th- that this is a good idea, as opposed to uh, what some people would say, well, no, 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 this is just opening the Constitution to a new constitutional convention, and we're just going to change everything in the United States. Well, first of all, it's a great honor to be with you. As you know, I have enormous respect for you and uh, your legal skills and all the rest of it. So that's number one. Number two, Convention of States is in the Constitution. I didn't make it up. You didn't make it up. If it was a threat to the Constitution, does anybody think the framers would actually put it in the Constitution? 
And unlike the daily changing of the Constitution that occurs in Washington, D.C., where they appear to have a a regular constitutional convention and keep changing the Constitution without going through the amendment process, as you point out, the framers of the Constitution in Philadelphia put this language in Article 5 to allow for two ways to amend the Constitution, and both of them are very difficult by design. The first one has been used uh, several times, as we know. The second one involves the legislatures of the states. It's pure federalism. And so in right now, if we get 34 states who agree on certain issues that they want to debate in their own meeting, states used to have meetings all the time. It's a meeting. That's all it is. You can call it a convention, but it's a meeting. Well, the legislatures send delegates, they discuss what it is they want to do, they make their votes, and then it has to go through the, the ratification process, which means three-fourths of the state legislatures or conventions of the state. So that process, where 38 state legislatures or conventions, depending on what they decide, have to approve an amendment, still is there. So the debate shouldn't be oh, we're going to have a constitutional convention to destroy the Constitution. The debate should be, we have our work cut out for us to get any change in the Constitution that will save the Constitution. So as an example, uh, I think we're almost, give or take, around 20 states, believe it or not, even though this has been a fairly low-profile process. And as you know, and I know, and I think your listeners know, Washington is not going to reform Washington. Congress is not going to say, given all the convoluted rules they have for operations there, you know what, we're too big, we're too strong, we're violating the Constitution. Congress creates all these statutes that delegates all this power to an administrative state that's not even in the Constitution. Then the Supreme Court typically upholds the regulations. And now we have a president who issues regulations, excuse me, uh, executive orders like lollipops. And so people complain about it, but writing your congressman or senator or calling is not going to fix it. So it was, I think it was two days before the end of the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, where George Mason got up. George Mason is the author of the Virginia Declaration of Rights. And Thomas Jefferson used, among other things, the Virginia Declaration of Rights when he did the first draft of the Declaration of Independence five weeks later. So George Mason gets up. George Mason was a real stickler. He was a delegate who voted against the Constitution because he thought it gave too much power to the central government. And he uh, he was the one who opposed a so-called, what we call today, Bill of Rights, because he was concerned by listing rights, we might leave one or two out. He was wrong about that, but that's okay. His mindset was correct. He gets up on the floor of the uh, of the Pennsylvania Assembly House, where they were meeting, and he says, look, what if Congress goes rogue? What if the whole federal government goes rogue? They're not going to fix themselves by proposing amendments to the states. We need to have another way to amend the Constitution that involves the states directly. He's the one that came up with the language for the second way of amending the Constitution in Article 5. They voted on it. Madison sort of rolled his eyes, if you will, and said, okay, fine. 
And yet it was Madison, about 20 years before, 30 years, whatever it was, before the Civil War, who pointed to that provision of Article 5 when he was written and others asked him about the, the ability of states to withdraw from the Union. And it was Madison who pointed to that and said, states have a lot of power if they seek to exercise it. And it's not just him. Everett Dirksen, who was a great Republican leader of the Senate from Illinois in the 60s and 70s, he said the same thing. Milton Friedman, at the end of his book, Free to Choose, he points to it. Ronald Reagan has pointed to it in the past. Others have, too. And so what happens is the media and the Democrats, rhinos, and uh, and certain so-called conservative groups, they object to this. On the on the left, they object to it because they they prefer to have their own system of changing the Constitution, which they have. And some of these groups on the right um, are kooks, to be perfectly honest with you. And so they they say, no, no, there will be a constitutional convention. So my challenge is this. How could you possibly have a runaway convention when you still need 38 states, that's the legislatures or conventions, to ratify whatever comes out of this meeting? How could you have a runaway convention? There's no such thing. Because mm-hmm. the, the ultimate process with the 38 states is how you do it in the first way, in the second way of amending. Again, our problem is going to be getting the amendments passed, not a runaway convention. I hope I haven't rambled too long here. No, that that was perfectly stated. And I love how you describe, Mark Levin, th- this as a meeting, because there are conventions all over. There's a Republican National Convention. There's a Democrat National Convention. There are conventions at convention centers all over the country. That doesn't mean that we are opening up the Constitution to changes at those meetings. And so people, I think, get so bogged down in the terminology that they're not willing to look at the system that our founders provided to give the states more power. And as we've looked at the ways that the Constitution has been amended in our nation's history, we've seen that a lot of those ways have only increased federal power, uh, specifically with a lot of the uh, Reconstruction Amendments and then the, the 16th and 17th Amendments, which in my view should be repealed, uh, the the national uh, federal income tax, as well as the method of changing uh, the, the election of United States senators to a popular vote instead of appointed by the state legislatures so that they actually had a responsibility to their own state. So in the particulars of, of the Convention of States project that you talk about that it has actually passed a has passed legislation in this um, this this uh, bill that or, or recommendation uh, resolution to move forward. This only has three subject matter in it, um, and so this is uh, this is not anything that would that would repeal the Second Amendment. You know, nothing that would repeal freedom of speech. Those topics aren't even on the table. So, um, in the sense of term limits, balanced budget, judicial reform. Uh, what are, in, in your perfect world, what would be some amendments that we should see out of a convention of the states? You know, I proposed 11 of them. I think those are three of them in uh, the Liberty Amendments. And I, among other things, uh, I give power back to the elected representatives of the people, take some power from this massive bureaucracy. And I was trying to think about the best way to do it, and I came up with an idea any regulation that has a market impact, a market impact of $100 million or more, 
would have to be provided to a special joint committee of the Senate and House for them to review. And after they review it, by majority vote of the House and Senate, they would have to endorse it. And if this committee doesn't act within six months, the proposed regulation is killed. In other words, reverse the process. They delegate these powers to faceless bureaucrats who are eliminating the combustion engine, who are eliminating uh, nav- in, under the navigable waters language in the Constitution, who are eliminating lakes, private property, all this other stuff going on without our input. You know, they want to eliminate uh, gas stoves, and you just go down the list. And that's not the way uh, a republic is supposed to function. This was set up, you know, by Wilson and then FDR and then the Great Society, and now we are where we are. And so that idea was, okay, you can propose whatever you want, but it's gone to this joint committee so it could be manageable. Um, that joint committee will make its own recommendation to Congress, and you have to vote on it if it has a market value of $100 million or more. So as an example, they wouldn't be able to abolish uh, through the backdoor regulation um, the combustion engine and in cars, they wouldn't be able to abolish gas stoves. All this stuff would have to go to this committee, and the bureaucracy would know that it has to go to this committee. Uh, that's one example. Another example I have in the book is I don't think the Supreme Court in every case should have the final say, but I don't believe in electing justices either. Um, so I was trying to figure out the best way to handle that. And again, I, I think the elected representatives. So I, I have suggested an amendment where if three-fifths, three-fifths, not a super-duper majority, but a supermajority of both houses of Congress uh, decide they can vote to nullify a decision of the Supreme Court, not rewrite it, not replace it, just nullify it if they do it within 24 months. So you have, you know, predictability, and people can, can rely on what's coming out of Washington, D.C., one way or the other. It's not just hanging over their heads. And I also have, as an alternative, if three-fifths of the state legislatures vote to nullify a Supreme Court decision, again, within two years, 24 months, uh, then that's the final say. Rather than, you know, five lawyers who happen to get picked to be justices of the Supreme Court, and you have five to four votes on what fundamental rights are. So, in other words, if one justice swings, it's not a fundamental right. So I think there's there's some perversity in all that. And, of course, the framers never expected the Supreme Court to be as powerful as it is or any of these branches of government. So that, again, that kind of uh, diversifies the power and gives the legislatures some power. It's not that I trust the legislatures. It's not that I trust any of them. It's just uh, how, in a system of imperfect government with very imperfect people, uh, do you try to figure out the best way to handle these things? So I don't think five justices should be making decisions that uh, that affect us for the rest of time. I think they can make those decisions, but if the state legislatures want to say, or even Congress, uh, then they rally the people. And then we can have a say. So we go to the state legislature. We go to Congress. So we, the people, have a say. It's not It's not a direct vote. I don't necessarily think the majority should always win when it comes to unalienable rights. They're unalienable rights. They're not subject to majority vote. But I think that would be the best way. And there's other things in there, too, about taxes and spending and 
you can see what they're doing on this budget. You can see what's happening on the debt ceiling. You can see what Biden is doing to the country and the economy. Uh, I have a proposal in there that requires a complete revamping of that entire spending, borrowing, and and budgeting process. So that's the kinds of things that I would like to see. My one objection was we shouldn't limit it to three things. We should we should have more than three things because I don't know if we'd ever be able to pull it off again. Um, so, but in any event, these three things are very very important that you mentioned. Yes, they they are. And I would agree with you. I wish that there was more subject matters in this resolution, but at least getting it that far uh, does address really important substantive issues mm-hmm. that our country really needs, and particularly judicial reform. And And you express this so well, Mark Levin, that uh, we, we need to make sure that the, the judiciary, which has become the method that the Democrats use to change and amend the Constitution at their whim and their will, um, that has become the method that that they have preferred and they have successfully done. And this is why now the Democrats are talking about expanding the court and court packing, because the new majority is not giving them the outcome-based activist decisions that they want. And so uh, why do you think, though, that, that Republicans and, and you've described some of them, I think, aptly as, as kooks, but at least in the state legislatures that have the opportunity to move forward and have a convention of states, why aren't more of them doing this and actually understanding all of this as you and I are talking about it? We have the uh, John Birch Society, which is still kind of bouncing around out there. We have Eagle Forum, which I have been a big supporter of, Phil Schlafly's old group. We have... Um, one or two gun rights groups, not the NRA, but others, who are stirring the pot. And uh, they're dead wrong. They have no idea what they're talking about, or worse, they do, and they're misleading people. I mean, do people really want to get back to a constitutional system or not? Because at this point, we're in a post-constitutional system. Um, I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't see us embracing federalism. I don't see us embracing representative government. Uh, I, I see that we move further and further away from constitutional government, more and more power centralized in Washington, D.C., more and more power centralized in the Democrat Party and the permanent government, the bureaucracy, uh, their judges, and now you see how their president conducts himself uh, like an autocrat, and, and you see the Democrats in Congress doing things the framers could never have dreamed of. When they have a Democrat president, they confer their legislative power to that president. When they don't, they try to destroy the Republican president who's off in office. Uh, this is not the kind of government that the framers had in mind, and here we are. So what are we? And so these other groups are very myopic, and wrongly so. As I say, there's no threat of a constitutional convention uh, because you still have to have 38 states that ratify anything that comes out of it. And uh, the reason we need to go to this second way of amending the Constitution is they are using the Constitution to destroy the Constitution, and we need to save the Constitution, because without it, we're just another centralized, economically socialist, culturally Marxist country, like in Europe, and we're declining and run raveling. 
And this empowers the Democrats and the hard left, or what I call the American Marxists. Uh, the Constitution is what stands between us and tyranny. It's what stands between us and totalitarianism. And it's what stands between us, quite honestly, and the Democrat Party, which embraces all of this stuff. So um, it would be nice if we could have these people use their heads. You know, we have a Republican leader, I think it was in Montana, either in the House or the Senate, who blocked a vote. Uh, we had Andy Biggs, when he was the president of the Senate in Arizona, who blocked the vote. As soon as he got elected to Congress, his replacement let the vote occur. So Arizona is now in the plus column. They voted to support the resolution. Just a lot of bizarre, misplaced thinking about this. Um, and you'll notice, Jenna, you and I are talking about using the Constitution as it was intended to be used. We're not talking about any extra-constitutional means. We're trying to address extra-constitutional conduct. If you look in the Constitution, where is judicial review? Hmm. Nowhere. Nowhere. It's an implied power. You have to have it. We understand from common law, from Britain, somebody has to be able to make decisions. But where is it written that it's the final decision? Maybe out of chaos people think that, and in most cases they're probably right, but that's why I think that needs to be addressed when it comes to these major issues that uh, judicial review that's not even in the Constitution, but representative government is at some point part of the representative government when it comes to these major cases, ought to, if it chooses, have a say, and not make it easy, but still have a say. Right now we have no say whatsoever given the power of the court. You know, Jefferson saw this early on. He was very concerned about this, the power of the judiciary. And he despised Marshall, John Marshall, who would become chief justice. And John Marshall was actually a distant cousin of Jefferson's. But Marshall had worked for Adams, and he was secretary of state. And you know all this. I'm just letting the audience know all this, that. And so... The Marbury versus Madison decision, which I wrote about in Men in Black, is really, I don't even agree with the decision. I'm in a very small either. minority, but yeah. And so mm -hmm. I, I read this decision, and the Federalist side, yeah, that was fantastic. What do you mean it was fantastic? He grabbed power that he didn't have. Now, that mm -hmm. said, Marshall was highly political. Uh, he'd run for office, and he lost. He was Secretary of State under the opposition party. Jefferson comes into office. Uh, they tried to push through a whole bunch of uh, magistrates or judges, and uh, the, the uh, <coughs> Jefferson wouldn't go for it. One of them brings a lawsuit um, and says, you know, I have a property right in this appointment. And Marshall writes, well, you don't have a property right in this appointment, but I have the power to make that decision. Now, what bothers me about that decision, not only was it wrong from my perspective, substantively, but Marshall should have recused himself. He was involved as Secretary of State in signing the guy's nomination. And so, you know, the left uses that as, a, as, as, as empowering the court to do whatever it wishes to do. Even look at the issue of marriage. Uh, that's up to the state's. And um, they decided it was up to the justices. Look at the issue of abortion. They got it right. 
you know, Alito and the others. It's up to the states. And uh, and the left goes nuts. They, they threaten Supreme Court justices. They want to expand the court so they get the decision they want. So they oppose federalism. They oppose representative government. They oppose constitutionalism. And we support it. Now, if you want to get it back, if you want to at least try to get it back in some significant way, then you'll support Convention of the States. If you just want to whine about it and rub your hands and and complain, then you won't. That's simple. Mm-hmm. So well said. And, uh, and and Mark Levin, I so appreciate your insights and championing these issues. And, and I agree that we need to use the Constitution and the way that it was designed to be able to Uh, to flex around how the Democrats are trying to manipulate it so that we can combat this and we can say, no, federalism matters, state sovereignty matters. And imagine if we had had that amendment that you propose that state legislatures in a three-fifths majority could nullify a decision, we may have had that in Obergefell. There were over 30 states that had constitutional amendments to their state constitutions that only recognized one man and one woman in in a marriage. And we could have said no to the federal government in ways that we should have. So I am a huge champion of the Convention of States project. I know that you are. I could talk to you for so much longer, and I I really appreciate your time today. It was an honor. And uh, where can people find you and also find um, all of your books so that they can read more and hopefully uh, if they have friends that are objecting to this type of method to use the Constitution can provide that as an educational tool? Well, um, the Liberty Amendments, I guess, on Amazon. Um, you probably won't find it in any public schools. Uh, you know, they're busy banning conservative books, I understand. And uh, Amazon, I suppose. Um, that's where all the books are. I guess that's it. As for finding me, they can find me on the radio or TV. I make it very hard for people to contact me because I have things I have to do and I just can't handle all the emails, if you know what I mean. In fact, (laughs) to set up this wonderful interview with this wonderful lady, and you're all those things, Jenna. You have a lot of fans, and we're very proud of everything you've done, regardless of the horrific attack that you've come under because of what's going on in this country today. Jenna had to deal with my wife the whole time in order to get my schedule straight because I can't even follow my schedule. So um, I want to thank you very, very much. Well, thank you so much, my friend. And your wife is very lovely and and really appreciate your time. And thank you for coming on and educating all of us uh, in how to continue to champion all of these issues and fight for our country because we are the last beacon of freedom. So continue to champion these things. And uh, I always love listening to you. My family are huge fans as well. So hopefully uh, we'll have you on again soon and without quite as much uh, consternation in getting you here. So we appreciate it so much. Thank you. Well, God bless. God bless you too. Thank you. All right. That was Mark Levin. And we will be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning to continue to talk about the Convention of States project and how this is a constitutionally appropriate measure. And I hope you will stick around. We'll be right back. Speaking truth with love. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Welcome back. And that was such a brilliant explanation by Mark Levin of uh, some of the history of not only our entire country, but also 
the history of Article 5 and how that became a part of the U.S. Constitution and uh, and particularly this alternative method of amending our Constitution through the state legislature's ability to propose amendments. And what I think is really important here when we're talking about constitutional convention versus an amendments process is that um, a, a convention, a constitutional convention would be rewriting the whole thing. There is no mechanism or process that our U.S. Constitution allows textually for that to ever happen. So even at a convention of the states, there's no more danger to our U.S. Constitution than there is any time that Congress is in session or that, as, as Mark Levin very aptly put it, uh, when the Supreme Court is in session. I mean, there have been ways that the left in particular and those, as our founders would say, are disposed to usurp the authority of the Constitution as the supreme law of the land, how they have manipulated and weaponized other powers of government to basically amend the Constitution without going through the proper mechanism. And so when Levin calls some of these um, some of these objectors kooks, um, I, I think if I can be so bold as to perhaps interpret that a little bit, um, I, I think that's a very apt term only because some of these people who are ardent conservatives are objecting based on a theoretical possibility that is already occurring in other branches of government and not utilizing the very provision that our founders gave us to preserve the intent and the mandate of the Constitution to preserve and protect our rights. So why wouldn't we before a process that the founders gave us? So our Constitution, we have to understand, is simply the nuts and bolts of the mandate that the Declaration of Independence provided for the purpose of government. And the founders in the original Constitutional Convention, which, of course, replaced the Articles of Confederation, and some people would say, oh, well, the first Constitutional Convention was a runaway because they had no power. Well, that's not true because the states sent delegates. They bound them. The state legislatures said, here's the authority that we're giving you to attend this. And that was the the mandate and the ability. And and the state legislatures could have reclaimed their delegates um, at any time. And so in the construct of what was our national government or our government system at that time, the Articles of Confederation, the delegates to the Constitutional Convention recognized was not sufficiently exercising and providing power to a federal government enough to be able to secure our rights. And that's what they debated for, you know, the three months that they were there. And they ultimately, uh, that resulted in the ratification of the U.S. Constitution. And it's important to recognize that the Federalists who wanted a weak national government, strong state sovereignty, that promoted the ratification of the U.S. Constitution in its original form made all of those arguments. And that's why you have the three lawyers that very famously wrote the Federalist Papers. Um, Our first Chief Justice, John Jay of James Madison, and of course, Alexander Hamilton, who is my personal favorite for Federalist 84, that is talking about how power is so limited to the textually enumerated powers to the three branches and then to the states uh, that 
all power not given to the federal government is reserved to the states or the people that he says, you know, we don't even need to enumerate specific rights in the Constitution because the Constitution doesn't give us our rights. It gives the government specific limited power to go and protect our rights. Um, He was totally right in that sense. I'm grateful that the states ended up ratifying our Bill of Rights and that we do have enumerated rights. But the point of this is that we don't have the right to for example, to our First Amendment protected rights, freedom of speech, association for exercise of religion, freedom of the press, petition the government for redress, those five protected rights. We don't have those in this country protected by our government because of the First Amendment. We have those protected because there is no power given to the government by which to infringe. Our First Amendment is simply a recognition of that and a redundancy protection to say, hey, governments most often infringe on these particular rights. So we are going to specifically say, Congress, you can't. Legislative branch, you can't. And that's the purpose of the Bill of Rights. And Alexander Hamilton was totally brilliant in explaining that. And I would commend to your reading uh, Federalist 84. But those were the Federalists. And then the Anti-Federalists didn't like the U.S. Constitution in the form that it was originally ratified. And so had arguments that were anti-federalist. And you can read the anti-federalist papers. And of course, they ended up losing the argument because when you have policy arguments, when you have uh, legal cases, when you have any type of argument, there is a winner and there is a loser. And so the anti-federalists ultimately were not successful. And our founders uh, ended up ratifying the U.S. Constitution and then ultimately ratified um, our first 10 amendments and then through article 5 that first process through congress and ratification from the states have then gone on to amend our constitution 27 times in our nation's history and that has been a a purposeful system design and element of our constitution because our founders recognized that we had to give enough power to the government to promote good, restrain evil, have a well-ordered society to provide freedom and liberty and protections for the family and the church and the individual to exercise our freedoms, to have a moral and upright society, to have order and design and the ability to thrive, uh, the ability to pursue happiness, to protect um, life, liberty, and property. But then we had to not have it so powerful that it would end up as a as a tyrannical, overreaching government that they had just removed themselves from. And so part of this design was the ability to reorient the system toward the goal, just like you have different fail-safes in any kind of system and design that is pursuing an objective. They recognized, our founders, that they may not get it right uh, the first time around. They took their best shot, and it's the greatest a civil government structure, I believe, in the history of of the world and in human history. And this is why we have had such freedom that's been protected in America and why so many people want to come here. But our founders also understood that maybe we would have to adjust. We'd have to take one power and give it to a different branch or to take, you know, one particular aspect and, um, and, and you know, maybe amend that. And what Mark Levin was talking about with Um, these amendments to say that the founders never contemplated that the concept of judicial review would be binding on the rest of the country. Um, In the original 
context of the Constitution, the Supreme Court was supposed to be the ultimate arbiter as to the parties of the dispute or as to the legislation in question. Not that that would be binding over everybody in the entire nation um, in the same way that judicial review has been implemented and is basically now legislating from the bench. And so the ability for a different part of government, um, so in this case, the suggestion of the legislatures of the states or of Congress, to be able to vacate the precedential value of a Supreme Court opinion or that binding authority as to the whole country makes a lot of sense. Because what if the Supreme Court gets it wrong in the very inception of their decision, like Roe versus Wade, for example? If the Supreme Court gets that wrong and is an activist court and is basically creating law by themselves, which they've done uh, since you know for the last hundred years, really, but even since the very first case in 1804, you know, the, the the Supreme Court has been runaway and has had more of a power grab than it was originally intended. So, how do we correct that system? How do we make an adjustment in our little satellite of government, if you will? through the amendments process. Now, Congress is not going to do and propose a lot of the amendments that would take away their own power. That's just the nature of man. It's the nature of career politicians now, especially. Uh, they're, they're not going to do some of these system design restructuring that don't benefit themselves. And so this is why there's a separate method that, um, that was that was promulgated and ultimately ratified at the at the Constitutional Convention to allow the state legislatures to also have structural design um, recalibrations to our system of government. And they can't just do that unilaterally. You can't just have, you know, one state legislature uh, pass a bill in both houses signed by the governor and bam, the, the, the Constitution is amended. No, it's much easier for five justices at the U.S. Supreme Court or an executive order from the president to arbitrarily and capriciously amend policy and effectively amend the Constitution, it just in practice, not textually, but in practice, uh, by so far overreaching. So, so to me, the objection to a convention of the states really is nonsensical. If you look at the way that government is operating now, and if you are a conservative that is concerned about a runaway executive through executive order, a runaway Supreme Court through a majority opinion, and the inability for Congress to legislate appropriately to rein in their uh, fellow sister branches, well, then the alternative that has been provided by our founders is the second method textually put there in Article 5. And, and I truly believe that we should have, as a country, exercised this option 100 years ago. We should have had conventions of states for the purpose of proposing amendments many times. I mean, Congress has proposed amendments that ultimately weren't ratified or, you know, failed even in Congress, didn't even get to the states. So just because you have a convention of states that sends delegates, there are proposals, um, some amendments may fail to pass out of that convention and go to the states. And then other amendments will go to the states and aren't ratified or it will take 
a decade to be ratified. I mean, this is a very slow and arduous process for a reason, so that we can't just take a sledgehammer to our system of government. But it's for a reason so that we can correct the overreaching of other branches. And and this becomes important, I think, as conservatives to recognize what a brilliantly complex but also very simple design our founders gave us in the Constitution to be able to make adjustments and that we don't have to overhaul our entire system of government. I mean, we look at other countries like France, for example, you know, that that has overhauled their constitution, um, you know, multiple times in their nation's history. And like, ah, that didn't work. Tear it up. Let's let's try a new one. We don't do that in the United States. But the Democrats have found workarounds. They have found ways to harness the power of government and basically ignore the text of the Constitution. So why would we as conservatives do the same thing? Why would we ignore the solution that, as Mark Levin very aptly said, is the solution our founders gave us? Why would we ignore that and take this one-term convention completely out of context and proof text that and say, oh, because the term convention is there, then that must mean that it's a constitutional convention and all of this will get overhauled and oh my gosh, and all of this, all of these objections. Um, he also mentioned Phyllis Schlafly from Eagle Forum and you know their Eagle Forum, I greatly respect. Um, I know a lot of uh, my dear friends who knew Phyllis Schlafly personally well. Um, I unfortunately didn't know her before she passed, um, but I know a lot of really great women at Eagle Forum now. Um, but the history of that, I think we have to recognize that she was misled herself by a letter from uh, the then U.S. Supreme Court uh, Chief Justice that uh, was was basically expressing this same false notion that a convention of states would be a runaway constitutional convention. And unfortunately for her, that was the advice that she sought and received that was not factually accurate and was was intended to mislead, in my opinion. And it's unfortunate that now future generations of Eagle Forum advocates are taking that history and believing that it is part of their history to object to a convention of states on a wrong foundation. And I would encourage anyone who's listening who is part of maybe local Eagle Forum chapters or um, you know, or even part of the national leadership. Um, you know, we've had um, we've had uh, their their current president on this show. And, and also on my podcast, and really think for yourselves and go through what Article 5 itself actually says. Because if we can propose amendments through Congress, why, why are we thinking that, that that's fine and we should trust Congress more than we trust state legislatures? Well, Mark Levin also had, I, I think, the brilliant response to that, which is that so many of these organizations, and I saw this firsthand for years in D.C., so many organizations are so used to the current system, they want to be the gatekeepers of power and only go through Washington instead of now this fight on the state level. And you're seeing that even with the overturning of the Roe versus Wade decision. So we have to reorient our thinking to the text of the Constitution and to understanding what the design is and the structure so that we can then have the actual solution that the founders provided and do this in a way that is making sure we move our system of government forward, we rein in federal government's power, 
I'm an advocate for this. I've written about it in my book, The Legal Basis for a Moral Constitution. So you can pick that up anywhere books are sold. Go to COS Project or Convention of States Project and learn more.